Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello, I'm Anna Smith. Welcome to episode five of Girls on Film, which we recorded live at the International Film Festival Rotterdam. We'll be reviewing Dirty God, Romantic Comedy, Capernaum, The Favourite, and a number of Bechdel test passes and fails. Enjoy. Hi everyone, I'm Anna Smith. I am British film critic and host of the podcast Girls on Film. I'd like to bring on today's guests. We have Dana Linson, a Dutch philosopher and film critic. She's the editor of Filmcrant and a writer for the NRC newspaper. Dana, please join us. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Secondly, we have Tara Judah, who is a freelance broadcaster and writer. She's co-host of the film podcast Cinema Blindspot and a member of the Women Film Critics Circle and many other things. Tara, join us. Thank you both so much for being Girls on Film today. We thought we would start off the conversation by talking a little bit what it's like to be a female film critic in the worlds in which we inhabit. So I'm very interested to hear from you, Dana, as someone that works in this country, because in the UK, we have certainly felt that there's been a slow increase in numbers of women critics coming through, but we're probably still only on about 30%. So there's a bit of a way to go. How are things over here? So I actually think we're doing pretty great in the Netherlands because I think the balance is 50-50. But then when you look a bit closer into that, I think all staff writers for major newspapers are still men. Oftentimes, the female critics are maybe typecast a little bit, so they're writing about children's films or kind of the, mm-hmm. the innocent or the non-dangerous genres. But then at the same time, for instance, I'm, I'm a big fan of everything involving car chases. So, so there this you go. is kind of where you stereotype. want to talk about cliches. They're not so, so gendered at the same time. Yeah. Stuart Little 2 was my first commission from Time Out. Yeah. I feel like, you know, that, that exemplifies, you know, <laughs> what you're saying. So Tara, I mean, tell us a bit more about your work as a film critic and how you think that balance is going in the UK. I think actually in the UK contemporarily, I think there are lots of female film critics. I certainly know and could name a ton. But where I think the imbalance is, is in terms of kind of recognition or platforming. So a lot of the very well-known and highly esteemed or kind of more famous or I guess celebrity film critics tend to be male. And it's not that there aren't equally as many great female film critics. I think that they just don't have the same platform. And part of that is to do with the fact that once people get these jobs, particularly writing for national press, they don't leave those jobs until either they die or, you know, I mean, really, they don't leave those jobs. So um, it's very difficult for there to be new spaces in that arena. And so I think if you look further afield from like the two or three top publications, you will find female voices. The diversity is there. It's just potentially not in the spotlight. And it's not just about gender. I think it is absolutely um, intersectionally across everything. It's class, it's race, it's ethnicity, you know, it's all of those things and trying to get kind of diversity recognized in that way I think does take a lot of time and that is essentially to do with 
I think, the way British culture is. Um, and that's because there is a very ingrained class system and it's, you know, it's a very old system that isn't just to do with film criticism, it's there in the entirety of society. And so breaking that down is not just film criticism's challenge, it's kind of a social challenge. What do you think about the role that we play in supporting female filmmakers? Do you think as female film critics, we have a responsibility to do that? I find this an incredibly <laughs> difficult question um, because in a way I would really like to say yes and no at the same time. And especially coming from where I come from, being a film critic for quite some time, having gone through all these phases where actually there was this first moment when I realized, okay, I'm a woman and why are all these characters on screen men and why are most of my whatever important colleagues or mentors, why are they male and do we have a, a certain responsibility here? And then of course I was being told, no, it doesn't matter, you can identify with a shoe and a tree and everything. And actually I still think that's true because I can, but I've become increasingly aware of the fact that you have a politics and you have a responsibility. But something that maybe slowed that down in my case as well is that I come from a long tradition in my family from um, working women. So actually then I had to realize that coming from a feminist or an emancipated background is also a form of privilege. So now I would say yes, we have a responsibility because there's an imbalance. Yeah, I don't know about you, Tara, but when I'm making decisions about what to cover, whether it's on a podcast or in a newspaper, I do like to strategically think, okay, what may not be getting in the attention that it deserves? You know, whether that is an unsung indie movie or a major rom-com that other people might be overlooking, perhaps to do with gender or perhaps to do with something else. Yeah, I definitely feel the same. I think um, largely for me, it's to do with the fact that when I was a kid, my first kind of introduction to loving movies was that I was a child actor, not a very successful one. But um, I, that's what I did when I was a kid. And I loved the movies and when I looked around when I started to get to that kind of awkward teenage age and I was no longer like cute enough to be in stuff I started to look at like what were the other jobs in the industry that I could have and the only things I saw women doing were being casting directors publicity and producers and not to say that these aren't good jobs they absolutely are but just that I never saw a female gaffer or a female DP or a female um, I mean they were doing the hair and makeup and the wardrobe but I never saw them on set doing a lot of the the kind of heavy lifting as it were and so it didn't occur to me that a, a woman could do those jobs and so for a long time I thought well I guess I'll be a casting director and then as I got older I kind of thought oh well, maybe there's like some other avenues and it sort of eventually took the the way that it took but it always impressed on me that you know it's really significant and important that that people see that variety of, of different people, not just women, not just gender, but like variety of different people can do a number of things. And so I program as well as being a film critic and it is really important to me that to showcase a variety of voices. I always look at the programming and think, what can we do better and how can we be more inclusive and how can we make sure also like we don't just show the same five films that always get restored and re-released. I mean, I think everybody's seen Taxi Driver and Vertigo now and not to say that they're not great films, but potentially there are other great films out there that haven't been shown. And I think a choice for anything is a choice against something else. And so that just has to be somewhere in your mind uh, when you're making those evaluations. 
That was very profound, but do you mind if I ask more about you being a child actor? Because I want to know, just before we close this section, yeah, right. just tell me what you, what you played, because I really want to know. Um, I played the daughter to Jimmy Smith, and Naomi Watts, actually, before she was famous, was the nanny in the film. No. Um, and it was an Australian film based on a very famous rape allegation case that happened in Tasmania. And I, when I became an older adult, actually, I feel really embarrassed to be in this film, because the film really makes it out as if the woman made it all up and I think in real life she actually was raped so obviously I didn't know that when I was 10 um, but it's one of those kind of things that you realize later in life it's made by the not famous Australian filmmaker George Miller there are two <laughs> okay yeah well I don't think you'd have yourself <laughs> responsible for that but thank you for informing me I was curious I'm going to move on to our next section which is films that are showing in IFFR and one of those is of course Dirty God some of you may have seen it already it's uh, set in London it's about a young mother who has to pick up the pieces after an acid attack leaves her with some severe facial burns. The film follows her daily life closely as she tries to adjust to her new appearance and as those people around her try to do the same. It's directed by Sasha Polak and it stars Vicky Knight who herself is a burn survivor and it's just found a distributor in the UK Modern Films. Let's have a look at a clip. So he comes in, just chilling, watching TV and I felt something on my face. First, I thought it was his coffee. I put my hands up. It's my skin. I started screaming. And Ray, she was screaming. Um, I thought this was, film was refreshing on so many levels. I mean, you're casting someone who is genuinely facial scarred and that plays into a big debate at the moment as well. And putting them in the central role, she's a heroine, but she's a complex character. She's not a saint. And, of course, it explores the concept of beauty and subjectivity. Dan, let's start with you. What did you think of this film? It's kind of hard to talk about someone whose face is, is scarred and, and mutilated because of an acid attack without actually seeing it. Because we all have these these ideas or imaginations of what it will look like, and actually in the in the film it just looks very dignified. So that's a very strong point of the film, I think. And this scene is a, is kind of a car wash scene where Jade, the the protagonist, is sort of talking to herself or this this alter ego or this this other past self or whatever about the event. And what is so so great about this scene, I mean, I have lukewarm feelings about other parts of the films because it's kind of a slice-of-life film, but it's a very thin slice-of-life, despite all the important subjects that are, that are being addressed. But what's so great about this scene is that it's actually also a great example of how director Sasha Polak, also in her previous films, um, Hamel and, and Zurich, has this what we've been calling and also trying to explore and, and identify as the female gaze because it's a very subjective camera perspective. It's kind of impressionistic, very tactile. So there's a lot of layering going on um, in the image that is definitely different from how any male director... Um, I'm making a blunt statement here, I'm fully aware of that, <laughs> but then how any male director would do that because there is kind of this presence of, of many emotions and many narrative layers at the same time. And this is also, I think, why 
this film was chosen to be the opening film of the Rotterdam Film Festival. Tara, I mean, you also had quite an interesting sort of take on the visual side of it. Yeah, I really liked this film, actually, and I love that scene. I think that scene is, is really fantastic and very illustrative of the things that I particularly like about the film. One is the music, um, her use of music constantly as a kind of like... I mean, obviously, music is always used in film to assist with your emotions, but I actually think it's done in a quite dynamic way in this film. And what I also really like about the visuals is the way that she uses color wash. And there's so much red and blue lighting in this film, and it's it's almost like it mirrors the kind of fire and ice struggle that the central character has internally, but also externally. So she kind of struggles, like the protagonist from Sasha Pollock's other film, I think, Hemel and Zurich, that... All the female protagonists in her three features are wronged by the world, but they also can't seem to help themselves in their struggle to make their lives better. They seem to kind of continuously go down this this, this negative path. And so this film, the kind of concept of this dirty god, I think is really to do with this sort of fate versus choice dilemma that the character is constantly in the middle of. And that is really demonstrated through the color tone of the film. And I think that kind of like red and blue lighting and the kind of the idea of a, a sort of, you know, particularly with a Burns victim, but also to do with flame um, and the way in which something is kind of like too hot to touch I feel like the imagery does that so I I, that's what I really liked about it it felt like it really touched on some quite bold and groundbreaking themes as well for me that there's some quite explicit sex scenes um, where she's watching pornography and it makes you realize you so rarely see women watching porn in films without any sense of judgment there's no sense of judgment at all from the camera it's from the people around her especially the the first kind of masturbation scene when she's watching pornography is, for me, it's not even about that. I mean, of course, it's about sex and satisfaction and orgasm and all that, but it's also very much, I mean, imagine having this this person who is attacked and mutilated and and trying to recover in a physical and in a in a in a in a psychological way um and then everything becomes kind of a metaphor um of course Sasha Polak's earlier films also were explicit sexually so for me it's not such a surprise and maybe actually a lot of the female filmmakers in the Netherlands have no inhibitions there. So, yeah, there you go. Come to the Netherlands. <laughs> yeah, come to the Netherlands and watch Dirty God. Okay, our next film could not be more different. It's called Romantic Comedy. It's directed by Elizabeth Sankey from the UK. It's a lively essay analysing her personal response to the romantic comedy genre. And it uses clips from multiple films to illustrate the tropes. Shall we have a look at a clip? Other filmmakers employ the same structure as traditional rom coms but disguise it. There's a number of reasons they might want to do this. Foremost among them, the sad fact that marketing a film as a romantic comedy is a quick route to critical disdain. Perhaps because so many of the people who are reviewing these films are men. A filmmaker hoping to be awarded accolades and acclaim would do better if they presented their romantic comedy as something else. David O. Russell used some romantic comedy tropes in Silver Linings Playbook. This Kubel dialogue. So how's your thing going? Dancing thing. That's good. How's your restraining order? The declaration of love. I love you. I knew it the minute I met you. I'm sorry it took so long for me to catch up. I just got stuck. And the happy ending. But the film avoided the cloud of critical disdain that surrounds the genre 
because it's tonally much darker than the romantic comedies I grew up watching. Instead of being clumsy, its characters dealt with real problems like suicide and depression. Well, that taps nicely into some of the subjects we talk about in Girls on Film. I enjoyed it a lot. I think it's a film that there's more to say. I feel like there could be obviously an entire TV series on this subject. But I do like to see analysis about romantic comedies because that's pretty much how I started out in film journalism. When I started writing, as I mentioned, Stuart Little, the likes of, you know, it was either kids' movies, teen movies, or romantic comedies that my editors asked me to review. And it was only a couple of years in that one of my editors once said to me, What's your favourite genre? And I said, Oh, I love sci fi. And he he fell off his chair. we didn't ask before, you know. So I became a de facto expert of romantic comedies. Um, of course, I do enjoy them. And I think Elizabeth's essay touches on her very personal reasons for enjoying them. And she talks about her own journey with them and also the evolution of the genre from the, the excruciating, the sweetest thing, Ladette phase, to the sort of buddy comedy, to slightly more diverse work. Dana, what did you make of this? I liked it a lot. I was actually, with this film, I was very much touched at at the ending because there's this build-up to this huge romantic feel and I'm definitely not insensitive to do that. And I really like how uh, Elizabeth Sankey is, is describing her personal journey, kind of growing up with the movies and, and, and seeing them as your role model. I was a bit surprised that she took them so literally. I mean, this is the whole point of the film, but at the same time, you know that romantic comedies aren't a realist genre. And the way, maybe I'm just, I don't know, an exception here, but the way I always watch romantic comedies is very much as a metaphorical genre, the way, and that's something that's being addressed in the film as well, of course, how they sort of came out of the screwball comedies of the, of the 30s. So, for instance, an example that she's giving that is that he's female characters are always behaving clumsy. Um, I always automatically saw that as kind of an external translation into action of a feeling. So I never thought, oh, these these girls are just clumsy and it's just a way to, to portray them in a, in a silly way. I always said, no, but come on, when you're in love, you always feel clumsy. So it's nice that there's actually kind of some kind of a visual translation of that. I think perhaps she's suggesting that this has had a bit of an insidious influence because romantic comedies is one of the biggest, most successful genres there are. And a lot of young people are watching them, as she was and as I was, when you're still developing and working things out. So if there is a heteronormative, for example, as point out, uh, angle in it, then that perhaps could be slightly damaging. What do you think, Tara? Yeah, um, I have a lot to say about this, so I try not to to talk forever. But um, I mean, I liked the film, but I think one of the central issues is the concept of a romantic comedy genre as a kind of realistic genre, because I also don't consider it that way, but more in that I think watching romantic comedies is actually kind of like watching science fiction films or horror films in that this is a fantasy genre and I I consider these fantasy films and I don't think that I consider the people in them to be real depictions of people. I mean, I guess it depends on your upbringing, but watching these as a kid, I was like, well, I'm not that rich. So those are obviously like (laughs) they're fantastical beings. You know, we don't have a house that is that huge. It's aspirational. Exactly. And of course, you know, and the film does address that, that that is one of the tropes that like is very particular, especially to American romantic comedies for good reason um, in that they are supposed to be aspirational. But in the sense, I would have liked a bit more of a breakdown of aspirational as kind of fantasy. I think 
that the strength of the film is really in some of the early stuff where they talk about the lineage from screwball comedies and I, w I would have liked a little bit more of that actually, kind of more of that sort of early cinema lineage because I think actually you could trace it back a little further. But obviously you can't fit all of that into this film. I think you're absolutely right that this would have made a really great series because I think there is so much more to, to untangle. I think it's at its absolute best when it's looking at things like the career tropes, like how work is portrayed in these films and when it takes like specific examples. And I think it just unfortunately didn't have quite enough time to fit everything in. I think I like the personal aspect. I'm glad that she, she took that tone with it. There's also a lot of other voices in the film for people who haven't seen it yet. She actually has kind of, I think, five or six other film critics, actors, etc., who kind of comment on the genre. And as great as their insights are, I actually would have also liked to have known a little bit more about who was speaking. I've got the list of them here if you'd like to know. Yes. Um, Jessica Barden, the actress, I recognise her voice, Cameron Cook, Auntie Donahue, Simran Hans, Brody Lancaster, Charlie Lyne, Eleanor McDowell and Laura Snapes. But yes, that could have been flagged a bit, I think, more because I, you were kind of wanting to see them and, and, and figure out know what, who, more about them. Yeah. Who was speaking if mm -hmm. you didn't recognise their voices? Tara, I don't think you're a big fan of the genre in general. No, I absolutely am not. You may have picked up on that subtlety. <laughs> I'm, I'm that I, sharp like I that. don't like rom-coms. <laughs> um, so then I'll ask Dana, do you have any favourite romantic comedies? Is there an era that, that you would particularly like? Yeah, well, as I was saying, I'm a bit more interested in the, in the 30s and, and or some pre-code films because they are so free. I mean, for instance, if you if you look back at It Happened One Night, I mean, come on, what is American Pie about when you watch that film? It's also kind of a juvenile sexual fantasy, but it's so much more sophisticated. And at the same time, Everybody at that time knew how they were sort of dealing with the production code and, and, and hiding all the intentions. And in a way, for a contemporary audience, being a little bit aware of that, it makes it so much more fun. Thank you for your thoughts on romantic comedies, ladies. Okay, so we're going on to a section on current releases, and some of which are also showing here. The first one is Capernaum. This centers on a 12-year-old Beirut street urchin who takes his parents to court for bringing him into a world of desperate poverty. He runs away when his parents sell his sister in exchange for some chickens and teams up with a young Ethiopian refugee whose infant becomes his companion. It's directed by Nadine Labiki. Dana, what did you make of this one? This, this starting point of the film where the, the child is sort of dragging his parents to court um, to sue them for him being born. I think that's a very clever premise of a film and a very very intelligent starting point of the film. Yeah. So I was expecting a bit more out of that starting point and then the film is very much about the survival of the kids on, on the streets in this sort of anonymized um, Middle Eastern town and it's, um, it addresses a lot of social issues but it's romanticizing a little bit too much for me. When I talked to the director about it, she obviously sort of <laughs> denied that and felt like the film is very realistic. But for me, it's more like a fairy tale in dire circumstances than it's, than that it's really a realistic film portraying people living on the streets, refugees, sort of makeshift families of people coming together and having to survive. So... Did you not feel that the sort of the way that it followed the daily life almost in real time gave a sense of realism a little bit? Not so much. I know that children can be can be very kind of inventive and, and clever in, in sort of surviving and, and figuring out how to do things. Mm -hmm. But no, I was 
not so enthusiastic yeah. about it. Tara. Yeah, so um, in case anyone thought I don't have any feelings because I don't like rom-coms, <laughs> I do have some feelings and this, this film brought them out. So um, I was reduced to an absolute puddle of tears watching this film. To that extent, actually, I kind of partially agree with Donna in that, I mean, obviously all films are emotionally manipulative, so in a way that's a stupid thing to say, but this is so emotionally manipulative. Like, it really plays on how distraught you will be by the sight of seeing children in distress if you have, I don't know, any humanity somewhere inside of you. So I found it really distressing on the one hand, but I also found myself... So I was... In a way, I admire her technique at being able to elicit that level of emotion. Um, but on the other hand, I also am a little bit suspicious of it, and it actually more to do with the ethics of filming some of the content in the film. So in order to show exploitation, obviously there is a film crew there. Obviously you know these children are being cared for in the fact that they're kind of being filmed. But, and I don't think this is too much of a spoiler because you'll see it in the start of the film, but there are a couple of times where like toddlers, like baby toddlers, are tied to things, you know, with rope or with chains. Now, even if you're even if you've got a crew there and even if all of those things are happening, I was like, you still tied a toddler to a post. <laughs> um, and so there was a, a kind of, I don't know, I found it difficult to kind of engage with a film that was willing to participate in, and it's necessary to show the extremity, I think, in a way, and I understand why she chose to do it, but I found it really traumatic to watch something and think, I'm literally watching a child bawling its eyes out tied to a post no matter how much support is there when they cut. And I just found that ethically really difficult to deal with as an audience. So you were understandably fully aware of the filming process throughout and not kind of separation of disbelief. Yeah. yeah. No, I, no, I do understand that. I mean, I found it very moving, but it's very interesting to hear what you say. I mean, it is, as you say, Donna, that the, the device of the courtroom is so fascinating. And, mm. and I actually quite liked that I thought it was going to go in a, in a more surreal direction than it actually did. Mm. And I thought that was kind of an interesting shift. Um, so that was Capernaum. Let's move on to a film that people may have heard of, The Favourite, obviously um, showing pretty much everywhere around the world at the moment, a historical period comedy drama directed by Yorgos Lantimos. It is, of course, about the relationship between two cousins, Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz, who are vying to be court favourites of Queen Anne, played by Olivia Colman in the early 18th century. Let's have a look at a clip. I'm ready for the Russian ambassador. Who did your makeup? We went for something dramatic. Do you like it? You look like a badger. Oh. Are you going to cry? Really? Well, what do you think you look like? Badger. Do you really think you can meet the Russian delegation looking like that? No. I will manage it. Go back to your rooms. Thank you. I've seen or heard that clip probably 50 times. <laughs> I laugh every single time. Brilliant performances, of course. I thought thoroughly refreshing, obviously, in the fact the central relationships between three women. But what did you both think? Diana, let's start with you. I find this film absolutely fascinating, but maybe for different reasons. I didn't get an entry point into the film through that perspective because I was really looking at the camera work and the distorted perspective. And then I just thought... Anne is in so much pain that her whole world is deformed. And of course, she, people are treating one another in, 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 in really terrible 
ways, but I was just really looking at this portrayal of pain. So I might have to watch it again and look at all these other issues. But I'm I'm really I'm really obsessed with this this the visual language of the film at this mm. point, and I there's I think there's a lot to gain there. Sorry, were you a fan of the visuals? So, yeah, that's interesting because no, the part of the film actually, sorry, Donna, <laughs> I keep disagreeing with no, you. It's, it's no, it is actually nice. And also, we have to hang out tomorrow. I don't know how we're going to do that. <laughs> we'll, we'll get past these um, problems. But yeah, my issue with the film actually, and it's, it's, he did it as well in his previous film, Killing of a Sacred Deer. So the, the cinematographer on this film, Robbie Ryan, it's not the cinematographer because the cinematographer has worked with Andrea Arnold on Fish Tank, on American Honey. You know, he's worked on a number of different films where he doesn't excessively use the cinematography, so I don't blame him. I think it's Yorgos Lanthimos' <laughs> direction. But in, in Killing of a Sacred Deer and in The Favourite, there's a really heavy reliance on these kind of fisheye lenses or these extreme angles. And I understand that, you know, obviously that's to show the kind of skewing of perspective and, you know, positioning of truth and this sort of surrealism that the films indulge in. Um, but I just think it's really excessive and the point is made. And then it kind of goes on to make the point again and again and again throughout the film to the point where actually I find the cinematography kind of distracting actually it's accelerating it's getting worse over the film and <laughs> also that's what's so so good about it because it's so <laughs> it's so extreme and it's so daring can we have another hour <laughs> <laughs> of the women but not of the cinematography <laughs> in the UK it's interesting people are a bit shocked by this film aren't they because apparently the aged aunts are going to see it and then thinking it's going to be a nice period drama and they're getting a little bit of a shock they absolutely yeah. are they so work in a cinema and people are coming out quite surprised that it's not literally the story of Queen Anne. It's not a literal period drama. So it's a period drama <laughs> detox, which I think yeah. is about time. <laughs> Breath of fresh air, I reckon. Brilliant. Okay, so would we recommend The Favourite? Yes, yes, despite yes. the cinematography. Yes, <laughs> Just to I make it clear, would. despite the cinematography yes. on one hand, yes, we would. <laughs> okay, our final section is the Bechdel test. I expect most of you have heard of the Bechdel test. I've got some nods here. It is a flawed but interesting method of devising a film as feminist credentials. So the rules are there have to be two women who are named and who talk to each other about something other than a man. Um, it's a slightly clunky test, but it's a good starting point. I'm going to start with the passes. And my pass is Second Act, the new Jennifer Lopez romantic comedy currently out in the UK. Now, obviously, my hopes were not high for this film. I hated Made in Manhattan, which was a long time ago, but it still stayed with me. I did love Working Girl, and this really draws from Working Girl quite a lot. She's a Jenny from the block who ends up magically transported, as you can see, to the big city, exciting job, where she's pitted against another woman, and you think they're going to be really competitive, but actually, things shift a little. So it subverts your expectations about women being in competition with each other. And it also, in terms of passing the Bechdel test, she has friends. Not all of them are skinny. That's good. They all talk about lots of different things, such as um, work, education, friendship, you know, emotions, all that kind of stuff. So it is not a great film, but... It is not a terrible film either. I'd say it's a three out of five. It is funny in places. And in the screening I went to, this is a thing I'm sure you're both aware of it, certainly in the UK, male critics can quite often, not all of them, but some of them sit there going, <sighs> just ha ha, and then the ironic laughter. <laughs> oh, God. 
And I was in the, in the ladies afterwards, as you do, chatting to some female critics, and they, they were all outraged because they said, we were getting into that in points. Okay, it's not brilliant, but you don't have to audibly show how clever you are and how disdainful you are. So that's why I wanted to say big up to second out for passing the Bechdel test. Let's talk about Cinderella, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> this is Tara's pass. <laughs> yeah, so this is my pass. Um, I picked a film that I don't particularly like for the opposite reasons. <laughs> I don't actually like the Bechdel test. Um, I kind of feel like we need to move to a, a slightly better bar. So to illustrate that, I wanted to pick a film that, you know, a Disney film, Cinderella, which is all about a woman who has a terrible terrible life essentially until she meets a dashing man who is literally all of the things like marriage monarchy you know all of that kind of stuff but this film passes because she talks to her fairy godmother you know about her hopes and dreams and about not losing faith in those things and also I think you know there are conversations with her stepsisters about cleaning so I was just gonna say <laughs> cleaning come on they talk about beans <laughs> so, so there are conversations um you know with with named characters about things other than a man but I I, I think it's a an illustration of the fact that just to pass the test is potentially not really enough. That was very interesting. Thank you. Should we go to your past now, Donna? I went back to all these cruel comedies and these pre-code films, and then I was texting a friend of mine, like, ah, I need, I need a pre-code film to illustrate something, to make a point. And he said, yeah, but they're all about sex. But then I thought, actually, what's making these films so great is that they're talking about sex in a different mm. way. And I was already addressing that when I was talking about romantic comedy. So I came up with uh, Trouble in Paradise, which is it's a love story. It's, it's a romantic comedy. It's about two kind of thieves falling for another and then at some point not falling for another or still falling for another. But it's very open-minded when it comes to the portrayal of sexual agency, I would mm -hmm. say. At some point, one of the women is seducing the men by doing some kind of gymnastics, and she's, she's laying on the floor and, and putting her legs over her head. And I feel like I want to see these kind of things in films nowadays because they're, they're also just so funny. I mean, they might talk about, like, robbery and stuff. It's a different subject. There's, not definitely, about men. Okay. there's definitely agency, and I think... Yeah. That's far more important. Talking of crime, um, my fail is Layer Cake from 2004. I came home the other night, my husband was watching it. I thought, well, okay, let's watch this again. And I was just shocked and appalled. I mean, it is entertaining in some regards. Um, it's the story of Daniel Craig, a cocaine dealer. The women in that film, they are absolutely just there to react to the men or to serve their story. Um, I don't know if you remember Sienna Miller's character. You probably won't because she's hardly in it, but she's, she plays the love interest. And there's this absolutely ridiculous scene where she, they have this phone call and, and she offers to come around to his hotel. She comes around to the hotel all dressed up. Then she goes into the bathroom, takes all her clothes off, puts on some sexy underwear. Why she couldn't do that at home, I do not know. And then, you know, lingeringly puts her stockings on. I mean, it's just blatant expectation, yeah. but it's also to get her out of the room so they can, something can happen in the room. So it's a blatant plot device. So that's a big thumbs down from me. Dana, what was your choice? Mine is basically a film about teddy bears, except that it's about a serial killer. It's The House That Jack Built by Lars von Trier, yeah. which is a very yeah. intelligent and, and thought-provoking film, and you can talk about it for hours, and it's, all, it's about art, and it's a meta-film, and Dante is in there, and it's everything in there, actually, I like. But it's also utterly pointless in the, in the sense that all, or most of the victims of this serial 
killer obviously are, are women, but the film is, instead of glorifying it, like the usual horror slasher films would probably do, it's also making it very pointless, which for me is like victimizing these women in like to the third degree or something. And actually doing that in a film nowadays? Mm. Why? I agree. It, it felt utterly pointless when I saw it in the front row in Cannes. I really, really wanted to walk out. But so there's know, so much can't. stuff you can talk about that it's mm. that is maybe um, Lars von Trier's, and he's he's sort of dealing with these obsessions with with women, and it's misogynist and all that. But it's also just pointless. Yeah, waste of money, I and say, and time. <laughs> right, we put that to bed. Um, Tara, what did you choose for your fail? So I chose a film I love for my fail, um, which is Claire Denis' Beau Travail. I think this film is absolutely fantastic. It fails because, well, for a start, there's only three named characters in the entire film. The two central characters and the commander have names. Everyone else is unnamed. So there are women in the film, and I think two of them do discuss rugs at one point, but they're not named characters, so they don't pass. But, you know, the, I, I can see this a really feminist film and I think Claire Denis is a, a really remarkable filmmaker and it's really a study of a lot of things I mean you, you know you can't really say this film is one thing or another because that would be really reductive but you know among many things that the film does is it looks at ritual it looks at masculinity it looks at physicality and I think those themes are you know really beautifully explored so I just wanted to use this as a kind of illustrative point that you know magnificent art also might fail this test um, and potentially one of the greatest female filmmakers of our time might fail this test. Um, a lot of Chantal Ackerman's films fail this test and I think you know those films are really significant so that's why I chose it. Well thank you both but I'd love to throw this open to the audience if anyone has anything to say on anything we've discussed or other questions there are microphones roving around I believe. Uh, hello. Hi. <laughs> um, a lot of my work so far has been focused on Indian cinema and what I've noticed in Indian cinema a lot especially in genres of romantic comedy or even action comedy is that these sexually transgressive behaviors are portrayed as trivialized, normalized, or even just, you know, under the facade of romance. They're not shown negatively. And um, my focus has been on Indian films, but I wanted to ask you, have you seen this occur in even Hollywood films, you know, in Australian cinema, in UK cinema, in Dutch cinema, where sexually transgressive behaviors, stalking, unwanted persistence, harassment, things like these have you know, center stage, and does that play a role in conditioning the audience and society into accepting those behaviors as normalized? I think that's a really huge and very interesting topic, and I would agree. I think all the time I'm reevaluating and revisiting films, and I think particularly since the Time's Up movement and Me Too, I think a lot of people are going back and watching things and actually being even more horrified than they were in the first instance. You know, women for a long time and men were encouraged to just go, oh, well, that's just the way men are, you know, so I think you're absolutely, you know, Yeah, definitely. I mean, Twilight is like a sparkly vampire that stalks a young woman it's really creepy super creepy and uh, you know if you go back and watch nine and a half weeks which some people call a really romantic film <laughs> it's not only stalker behavior he's also violent towards her and he like pursues her in, in in a physically violent way until she literally has no more power to kind of succumb to him the film is really one of the worst it's like even when he gives her a gift it's like time it's a watch it's time so it's like he physically it manipulates every single aspect of her spatial and temporal existence. Yeah, good question. Thank you. Thank you. We've got time for one or two more questions. 
Hi, uh, good evening. I'm thinking when you are writing, did you find um, or noticed um, a gender bias in words that you used or you would like to use? And would you try to fix it, uh, to work around those kind of words? Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. I noticed myself, I tried to attack my own unconscious bias about the order in which I listed actors. You know, when you have an ensemble of film and you write a review and you have to list the cast, I realized that I was unconsciously putting the men first because that's what everyone does or used to do. And I decided to switch it, all things being equal. And none of my editors changed it or even probably really noticed it. It's just something that happens. Yeah, I don't think actually that I, so much in terms of gender, more actually in terms of class. Um, my preference is to actually write from a personal point of view, not to write from a really distanced point of view. Now that's not as financially lucrative or as helpful if you want to kind of make a living as a critic because that's less favored. Um, and a lot of the places that will let you write like that or let you have, you know, kind of freedom of, of lots of expression tend to be unpaid publications. So that's a kind of catch-22. I think we should take one last question. Yeah, go for it. Hello. Um, how do you guys deal with really hardcore film bros that, for example, and this is a made-up situation, if you were having a conversation with someone about the Lars von Trier film and you were talking about how the women are represented and then they say, for example, oh, but he kills men as well or something, and you just think, oh, I don't want to open this can of worms, <laughs> but also... I mean, I guess I'm lucky in that I try not to have too many conversations with people who have opinions like that. But um, <laughs> equally, I would say, like, the thing that bores me the most and has always bored me the most, and especially when I used to work in a video shop, and it does tend to more often than not be men. I'm not saying women don't do it, but it does tend to be men that do it more than women. Um, when someone retells you the plot of a movie, I think that <laughs> describing the plot of a film is literally the most boring way to talk about a film ever. Um, and so I actually have a prepared, glazed expression that I kind of switch on when people start like movie splaining to me and I'm like uh-huh yeah that's really interesting and like secretly I'm kind of on a desert island with a pina colada <laughs> or something. Sana <laughs> do you have a way of dealing with this sort of thing? Actually I find it's a hard question because no I don't and as Tara was speaking I was also thinking yeah of course I, I probably also have kind of tactics to avoid certain conversations but also I just have a platform in writing, so oftentimes when I've finished a piece, everything I wanted to say, if, whether it be 200 words, which is really difficult, or 1,500, but I try to put everything I have to say about the film in that framework, and then a discussion about, about a film after that needs to go on another level, so I don't encounter too much of these situations. I think we're lucky because we write about films so we can refer people to our work or I can say, why don't you download Girls on Film from iTunes, <laughs> for example, which brings me to thanking my contributors this evening, Donna Linson and Tara Duda. Thank you very much indeed. I'd also like to thank Hedda Archbold for producing, Jane Long for audio producing and the IMFR for having us today and all of you for coming and being such great fun. Thank you very, very much for joining Girls on Film. Thanks, Donna. Thanks for listening. The next episode of Girls on Film will be recorded live at home in Manchester on the 27th of February. If you're up that way, then do join us. You can book at homemcr.org. Girls on Film is an HLA agency production. Mm -hmm.